gentler skincare is always better, especially for skin of color patients who are struggling with pigmentation issues. Anytime we use too many ingredients or harsh ingredients, you're going to get some irritation, which can exacerbate that pigmentation. So I always recommend a simple and gentle skincare regimen. Welcome to The Skin Reel, your guide to all things skincare, skin health, beauty, and more, curated by dermatologists and true skin experts. I'm your host, Dr. Mary Alice Mina. I'm a double board certified dermatologist and dermatologic surgeon with over a decade of clinical experience. If you're looking for real, practical, unhyped skincare guidance and expertise, or you just think the skin is really cool, then you're in the right spot. I'm so glad you've tuned in to The Skin Reel. Now let's dive in because this is how dermatologists talk skin. Hi everyone, quick disclaimer here before we start. This podcast is for educational purposes only and is not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or other qualified medical professional. If you're looking for help on your skin journey, please check out the American Academy of Dermatology's website, aad.org, where you can search their database for dermatologists near you. It is so important that you have someone in your corner who's well-trained, licensed, and board-certified who can help you make decisions when it comes to your skin health. Okay, got it? Great. Now for the fun stuff. Hi there. Did you know that many of the topics I bring to you on the Skin Reel are things I actually see and treat in my office? as a practicing board-certified dermatologist? That's right. At Bauckham and Mina Derm Surgery, my business partner and I are on a mission to provide exceptional procedural dermatology care in Atlanta, Georgia. We offer skin cancer surgery to large cyst and lipoma removals, to injectables, chemical peels, microcoring, and more advanced techniques with things like liposuction, eyelid lifts, neck lifts, lip lifts, and so much more. But most of all, we love helping our patients transform their skin with real results. You know me, I am all about real skincare by real skin experts, real simple. If you're in the Atlanta area, I hope you'll stop by and see me. You can get more information at my website, atlantadermsurgery.com, or by calling 404 844-0496. I can't wait to see you. Hi, skin friend. Thanks so much for tuning in for this week's episode of The Skin Reel. I am really excited to have a fellow Atlantan as well as board-certified dermatologist and dermatologic surgeon joining me, Dr. Swati Cannon. We are going to be discussing skin of color and why this is something that we are finally starting to hear about in dermatology. I don't feel like I'm old or trained that long ago, but even 12 years ago, it really wasn't something that was discussed in my residency program and a lot of the skin things that we discussed and photos that we saw, it was all based on people having skin like mine that was more Western European and Caucasian. And so now there's been this big push to be more inclusive with the things that we are teaching our dermatology residents, as well as sort of these atlases that show common skin conditions, because common skin conditions can look really different based on your background skin type. So talking about skin of color is so overdue and it's so important. And I'm so glad to have someone like Dr. Cannon on joining me to discuss why it's important and why it matters. 
Now, Dr. Cannon is a dermatologist as well as a Mohs surgeon and cosmetic dermatologist. She's assistant professor at UC San Diego, where she is helping to train the next generation of dermatology residents and surgical fellows. And she also puts out really amazing educational content on her social media, her Instagram feed, and she also has a YouTube channel. So be sure to check that out after the show, and I will include all of that in the show notes. So let's definitely dive into the world of dermatology and skin health for someone with skin of color and why it matters. Dr. Cannon, thank you so much for being here. It's really a pleasure to have you on the show. Oh my gosh, Dr. Mina, thank you so much. I actually love your podcast and I recommend it to so many of my patients. So it's such an honor for me to be here. Thank you for having me. That's really why I did it, right? I know it's hard for people to get in to see a dermatologist. And I think it's so important that board certified dermatologists like ourselves are putting out really good information like you are on your social media platforms as well. So I also love that we are in the same city recording this, but we're actually not together. And even though you work in California, your home or your where you grew up, it's here in Atlanta. So I think that's really fun. We actually come here every year for Christmas. I haven't lived in Atlanta then over 10 years. But I really, I love coming home. So it's nice that I see a friendly Atlanta face during this recording. That's great. I love it. Well, anyway, I want to talk today about skin of color. And this is something I didn't think I was old, but we didn't talk about this even 12 years ago in my residency training, which it kind of boggles my mind, but it's something we're hearing about more and more and for good reasons. And I'd love for you to just share with us, what does that term mean, skin of color, and why are we discussing it now? Skin of color, I think it's such an important thing to discuss because it's such a broad term and it encompasses a variety of different skin tones and ethnicities, ranging from people like myself, who I'm Indian, to Asian Latina, Middle Eastern, Africans, and a whole variety of other ethnicities. And it's important to address skin of color because a lot of the conditions that even I was taught when I was a resident, it pertained to people with lighter skin. So the photos that we see and the descriptions we hear pertain to Caucasian skin. However, a lot of these different conditions manifest much differently in skin of color. And if we're not learning about it and training more in it, then we're more likely to make misdiagnoses, make mistakes, not offer the correct treatment for skin of color patients. I was pretty lucky. I trained at Henry Ford Hospital where we had a lot of African-American patients and I really got to see conditions like rosacea and all different skin types. But when I moved to California, I had to relearn on how to treat Asian skin, for example, or even Indian skin. So it's not just lumping skin of color into this one term. We really need to specify which ethnicity we're discussing and how to manage the issues that occur in the various different skin groups. So important. And geographic variation is huge, right? I trained in Boston, very different patient population from here in Atlanta, just like with your training in California. And skin of color, it's not like you either have skin of color or you don't. There's so many shades between, especially in a country like ours, where even within my family, my husband's Egyptian. I am very fair, very Caucasian, Western European. And our kids, even between my two children, they have varying skin colors. So it's such a melting pot here in the U.S. And 
there's such variation on that. And so it, it goes even beyond, well, where are you from, right? And what's your family background? Because even within that, there are variations, right? Exactly. And I think there's a statistic that by what, 2050 or 2060, America is just going to be a melting pot of different brown toned individuals. So even my husband's Middle Eastern, I'm Indian. My friends are all different um, ethnicities and their kids are these different shades of brown. So it's important to learn, I think, how we're going to treat them and how to teach future generations and even our generation on how to treat these patients. In our textbooks and atlases, we would see photos, like you said, of rosacea in someone with more my skin type. Well, then how do you know what rosacea looks like in someone with darker skin? How do you know what a melanoma looks like in someone with darker skin, right? And so just having that representation is so critical. And in dermatology, we're so visual. So I love that I'm now seeing atlases and we used to call them Kodachromes, like photos of skin conditions in different skin types. And a great example is like what we call erythema, right? redness, pinkness in the skin. Well, that's going to look really different on my skin. On my skin, it's going to look pretty pink, like the what you might think of. But in someone who has more pigment in their skin, that erythema may actually look dark, right? And not so red. Yeah, exactly. I think you uh, like rosacea is such a good example. It's also, I think, misunderstood that rosacea, for example, doesn't occur in skin of color patients when that's simply not true. It's just not as easily diagnosed because it can be a little bit more violaceous. It's not as popular or, you know, red. Even other inflammatory conditions like psoriasis, which often presents as like red scaly plaques on Caucasian skin, can often be very violaceous or almost white in color because the only thing you see is a distinction between the brown skin tone and the white plaque. It can be super subtle. And when you're saying violaceous, just for people listening, that's more of like a purple, a violet, lavender kind of purple color. Yeah. Right. Um, I think the other verbal skin cancer surgeons, I think that's a really important topic to talk about. In Caucasians, we're very familiar with how certain skin cancers like basal cell or squamous cell carcinomas can look like. But in pigmented skin, it often appears dark in color and it can be very subtle. It mimics seborrheic keratosis, which are those warty barnacles that we all get with age. I think even for dermatologists to be aware of the different presentations of skin cancers is so important for diagnosis and treatment. While it is true, people who do have lighter skin have more sun damage and the numbers are statistically higher for them getting skin cancers like basal cell and squamous cells and melanoma skin cancers. I think there's this notion that, well, if I have darker skin, I don't have to worry about those things. And that's actually not true. I still see patients of all colors coming in with basal cells, squamous cells, and melanomas, not to the same frequency. But unfortunately, they often are coming at a later presentation where someone has been treating it like it's eczema and it's a huge squamous cell and not inflammatory at all. So I think we also just need to get the word out that, well, yes, you have some protection with more melanin in your skin, but it's not impossible for you to get a skin cancer. And if something's not healing and it's not responding to our traditional treatments, then we need to dig a little bit deeper. And I think that's important for dermatologists to hear, primary care doctors, and also for patients to not just blow it off as, well, it's normal, it's nothing cancerous because I've got darker skin. Exactly. And with that being said, even darker skin patients need to wear sunscreen and practice sun avoidance. Yes. The melanin is only protective percent 
so long. So um, I think it's an important message to spread. We have people in my office of all skin types and every single one of them will wear sunscreen. And I, I'm super, super happy about that. Or at least they tell me they do, but I, I think they do. But yeah, absolutely. Even with the darkest skin, the most melanin skin, right? It's like a SPF 14, I think I read. So everyone still needs to wear sunscreen. And the funny thing is I sometimes find my patients with darker skin are more vigilant about sun protection than someone who has lighter skin who is actively trying to tan. So I don't know. Sometimes there's that <laughs> paradigm. What I've noticed being Indian is that usually from Asian and Indian and Middle Eastern cultures, they don't want to get darker because there is this Eurocentric focus on being lighter skinned after like colonialism happened. I always feel that people want what they don't have. So Caucasians wanted to get more tan. They went to tanning beds and then people of my skin tone wanted to become lighter. So they tend to practice more sun protection, but that's also the population that tends to struggle with pigmentation issues. Um, and so it's important for this population to be sun protective and practice sun protective behaviors for sure. Not even just for skin cancers, but for photo aging. I definitely want to delve into this about are there differences with different skin types? And I guess before we even break that down, can we just talk about in dermatology, how do we classify skin types? Is there a classification? And, and what are your thoughts on that? Well, all of us use the Fitzpatrick scale, which is a pretty crude measure of looking at skin types. You know, it goes from skin type one, which is very fair, burns easily, doesn't tan to skin type six, which never burns, always tans. However, the scale, in my opinion, doesn't take into account the different genetics or environmental background that often affect all these different ethnicities. And I feel the scale breaks down almost or isn't effective after skin type four. Yeah. And I believe that Dr. Fitzpatrick developed it I think in 1975, and he was trying to measure the effects of UV on white individuals because he wanted to see how he could use UVA therapy for psoriasis on white-skinned individuals. So it was not developed for brown skin. And so in my practice, I ask the questions like, do you burn, do you tan? But I don't always use that as my background when I'm trying to determine what treatments I'm going to offer. I often ask other questions like, how do you scar? Do you make scars that are brown, white, thick, dark, red? How do you scar? I look at their palmar creases to determine if their creases are darker, the same skin as the rest of their hand, because those different clues will help me understand how they will respond to certain cosmetic treatments like lasers or if I'm doing surgery on them for skin cancers, they'll let me know like, hey, you are going to get discoloration from this surgery no matter what I do. So let's try to prevent that by using the following creams or techniques, etc. So I do think we need a better scale. You're spot on with it really wasn't developed as a way to classify people what skin tone or they are, right? It was to determine how easily essentially Caucasians would burn, but we do use it as a proxy for skin type. But I love that trick where you do look at the palmar creases on your hands and if they're dark, then you have a higher chance of hyperpigmenting, right? Or getting dark scars. So that's one little trick you can use. And I think that's great. We're both skin cancer surgeons as well as do cosmetic dermatology. It's important to really set those expectations for what patients can expect, what any sort of complications could be or side effects. Because if you don't tell them, then it can be pretty alarming and concerning. And there are things we can do to kind of help mitigate some of that stuff. So yeah. And I know that some groups are trying to tweak that classification and put in sort of like, I think it's like a 4A, 4B and make it a little more precise. 
So I think we'll be hearing more about that to come. And certainly as our population changes, when we are going to be so many more shades of brown, we got to get a better handle on how do we classify this? It's not just going to be a simple six number scale, I think. I agree. I think there's a scale called the Roberts scale. It was developed by Dr. Wendy Roberts. She's a Southern California dermatologist. And there was a paper on it that I remember looking at, but I felt like that was very helpful because it also took into account not even just discoloration risk, but skin of color tends to scar differently. And so it even took into account like their scar types. I feel like you said, we're going to have to come up with a different classification system to be able to characterize the different ethnicities. More to come for sure. Now, we've touched on it a little bit at how some skin conditions present differently in skin of color than necessarily what we traditionally think of, like with rosacea and skin cancers. What are some other conditions that either we don't think of as occurring in people with skin of color or that are maybe overrepresented in skin of color? That is such a good question. I can think of it from the cosmetic standpoint of view because that's what I do. So I think one common condition is something called maturational dyschromia. And it's not something that we really hear about as American dermatologists, but it's more spoken about in Asia and India. And it's this condition where people get this symmetric discoloration on the side or on the cheekbones and a little bit on the temples. And it's often mistaken as melasma, but it's actually quite different than melasma, which also appears as, you know, reticulated brown patches on, on the face due to sun exposure. But maturational dyschromia is unique. It's harder to treat, so it doesn't respond as well as to lightening agents, but it's also a sign of insulin sensitivity. And certain ethnic groups like African-Americans and Indians and some Middle Easterns, they're more likely to have insulin sensitivity than other groups due to their genetic background. And so in these cases, it's, it's important not only to say, hey, you have maturational dyschromia, but hey, you need to go see your primary care doctor and make sure that you don't have frank diabetes. So I think that's one kind of example I can think of from the top of my head. But most skin of color, they usually tend to present with pigmentation issues of some sort, whether it's discoloration around the eyes, discoloration around the mouth, maturational dyschromia, discoloration from acne scars, etc. So that's the most common cosmetic complaint I see from skin of color. I also have noticed that Asian uh, patients, for example, when they have the sunspots, the lentigenes that we call them, those are much harder to treat in Asian patients than in Caucasian patients. They tend to have slightly deeper pigment and you have to use gentler treatment modalities in those patients to be able to remove them. So there's all these different nuances of pigmentation even in the various ethnicities. Well, and you know, with pigmentation being a big concern for people who have more or pigment in their skin, you have to balance it, right? Because you don't want to over-treat them and leave them with depigmented or hypopigmented areas. Now, depigmented is going to be a white scar that's going to be very noticeable. It's not going to get the pigment back. So that's kind of like the worst thing that you want to be careful about. But also even just some lightening of the skin temporarily can be distressing for people, especially if they're not prepared for it. So yeah, it's a balancing act because a lot of our cosmetic procedures or I'll say lasers, if they they target pigment, you want them to target the pigment of the hyperpigmentation, but you don't want to remove their natural skin color. So it's this tricky balance, right? 
I really love that dermatologists are coming on podcasts and social media to speak up about laser treatments and how you really need a board certified dermatologist or plastic surgeon who knows so much about cosmetic treatments because people go get Groupon deals for Medispas and I just see so many burns and bad outcomes from these Medispas. So it's important for patients, I think, to understand like, hey, whether you have your skin of color or not, um, even Caucasians can get burnt and can get bad outcomes. It's important to see the right person for any skin-related need. A white scar on me is going to be way less noticeable than someone with pigment in their skin, right? And so, uh, yeah, I tell all my friends who are any bit darker than me, like, just be careful. Make sure you're seeing someone really trained who knows how to work with darker skin because the complications can be a lot greater and more noticeable and take a lot longer to heal. So you may need to do a test spot first. So it's super important because a white scar on me is going to blend way more easily than you, Dr. Cannon. So even things you think of as super simple laser hair removal, right? I mean, we see this even in tan people, they can get some discoloration from that. Yeah, I actually have a personal experience. When I was in college, I went to a Medispa for laser hair removal, not knowing any better. And I came out with all these burns in my legs. And so, yes, simple as laser hair removal sounds, you know, it can get burnt. And, you know, it's probably what segued my experience into dermatology. But well, so what did you do? How did you treat I this? I cried. <laughs> <laughs> I cried and then I must have been 19 or 20. I think I just wore sunscreen and I used hydroquinone probably and it eventually went away. I mean, this was about 17 years ago, but it's a constant like experience. It's experience that teaches you, but I hope that people don't have to experience it to learn. Like hopefully they learn from other people's mistakes and all the advice that we give online. Sometimes I feel like uh, my staff will say, you know, is this a device or something that all skin types can use or not? And so what are some devices that for aesthetic concerns are safe to use on all skin types or most skin types? I think certain wavelengths are better. So wavelength determines what we can treat on the patient. So devices with the 1064 nanometer wavelength, we can use this for laser hair removal in darker patients. We can sometimes use it for collagen production and certain blood vessels. And that's going to be a deeper, it's going to penetrate more deeply, right? Which is correct in theory going to save the surface pigment in your skin correct but of course if the wrong user uses it and they use high energy levels you can still get a burn in darker skin types but it's technically a safer device and something called 532 nanometers which penetrates much more superficially and also gets the surrounding skin i also really like to use resurfacing laser so the laser is called non-fractional non-ablative lasers meaning that they create channels into the skin but don't remove the top layer. So devices like Moxie, Clear and Brilliant, or Fraxel, these tend to be pretty safe for darker skin types as long as we use the right settings and decrease the density, which is the number of channels created per treatment area. I tend to use Fraxel a lot for acne scar patients or any really any scar type or skin texture in darker skin patients. And then I really like using just a clear and brilliant, which is a even a gentler Fraxel. I really like using that for pigmentation issues because it takes many treatments, but it doesn't increase the risk of melasma or pigmentation worsening. Yeah, because you have to be careful with some of these devices that they are causing heat in the skin, right? And that heat can stimulate hyperpigmentation. Correct. So I think a device that's really notorious for damaging skin of color is IPL. 
or broad-based light. I love IPL for Caucasian skin and sun damage, but I would never use it with my skin type or darker just because that risk of what you were saying where the skin turns white is so much higher for a device like IPL and in skin of color. Even other devices that I, you know, something called fractional ablative lasers, which actually does remove the top layer of the skin. I think even those can be used under the right circumstances with the right technique in darker skin patients, as long as these patients use good sun protective measures. But for my patients, usually if I have skin of color patients and I'm going to be doing these slightly more aggressive treatments, I do pre-treat them. So I'll pre-treat them for about a month with hydroquinone or other melanin suppressors. And then I amp up their sun protection game. I basically say, if you can see your discoloration, the sun can see it. So you cannot be looking at the sun, especially in California. (laughs) Yeah, right. By doing that beforehand, it really can help increase the benefits of the treatment afterwards. And then what do you do after? Do you have them continue the hydroquinone or lightening creams? I do. So I first recommend tinted sunscreens for almost all skin of color patients, especially if we're trying to treat pigmentation issues. And that's because tinted sunscreens contain the iron oxide as an ingredient which protects against visible light. I don't think a lot of people realize that even visible light can worsen pigmentation issues. So they will use tinted sunscreen and then continue the hydroquinone for usually about a month after the treatment just to make sure that we don't have any excessive melanin production. I think that's such a great point. And tinted sunscreen looks orange on me, so I cannot wear it. But my staff, my friends and patients who do have more melanin, the sunscreen without a tint can look really white and pasty. And so I find that the tint just helps it blend in, especially if they're doing a mineral-based sunscreen, which classically can leave more of a white cap. So I think the tinted is great anyways, just for blending in and looking more natural too. So I find that's usually an easy one to get people to get on board with. Yeah, I think so. I think that really dark skin types, there's not good tinted sunscreens for the really dark skin type um, patients, I usually recommend that they take a bit of their foundation and just mix it with either the tinted sunscreen just to make it more their color to help it blend better. There are now newer sunscreens that do target the African-American skin types, but they're still kind of rare and hard to find. Yeah, I know a lot of people in my office like the Black Girl Magic. Yeah. And so that's a popular one in our office. And we have like a sheet where all the staff write down their favorites. And it's great because we can hand it out to patients. And that's not a sunscreen I've tried, but I have staff who are skin type six, which is the darkest, and it goes on really nicely for them. And again, it's really just find the sunscreen that you like, that blends in, that you like the feel of, and that can be super helpful. But yeah, I like the trick with the tinted. And if you can't find a tinted one that works, mix it with your foundation if you wear foundation or just grab some foundation and add it in just to help it. That's a great tip. I love that. I like your idea. I'm going to borrow it for my cosmetic side. Oh yeah, but it's great because especially if if you have people from different backgrounds, they're not all necessarily going to want that or regardless, right? Not everyone wants the same sunscreen. So we keep it kind of updated. So that's awesome. Now, what are some of your pearls I would love to hear for melasma? Because I know this can be difficult. Melasma, I think it's one of the toughest conditions to treat until I encountered maturational dyschromia. <laughs> and then I think now that's the toughest to treat. So my pearls for melasma, obviously besides using tinted sunscreen, I usually recommend a morning and a nighttime regimen. 
the morning regimen consists of other skin lighteners like tranexamic acid, kojic acid, vitamin C, licorice, arbutin. These are some really great ingredients for skin lightening. And then, of course, I recommend usually two layers of sunscreen. I'm a really big fan uh, lately of Korean sunscreen. So there's a brand, Beauty of Joseon. It's very affordable and it contains a much wider range of UVA protection that our American filters don't you know, do a good job of protecting against UVA, which is one of the reasons for melanin synthesis. The UVA wavelengths come in through things like car windows or like I'm sitting by a window here. You get sun without even realizing it and that can be triggering your melasma. Yes, a great point. Even if you're sitting inside the home next to a window, if you have melasma, you need to wear sunscreen. And then on top of that, I recommend a tinted sunscreen just to protect against visible lights. Usually two layers of sunscreen for my melasma patients. And then at night, I do use hydroquinone and I use hydroquinone at slightly higher strengths. I know that people are concerned about is hydroquinone carcinogenic, and we have so much research proving that at the amounts we use, it's not carcinogenic. That study was done in mice who were given like a thousand times its weight in hydroquinone, and those were never replicated in humans to show any sort of carcinogenic effect. And then there's that the main risk that dermatologists talk about, which is ochronosis, which is when you have further kind of like a different type of pigmentation due to hydroquinone. The way I like to use hydroquinone to minimize that risk is I'll do three months on, one month off. So use hydroquinone about 8% or higher. That's also mixed with kojic and tranexamic acid. And you take a little amount and mix it with the moisturizer and apply it on at nighttime. For some skin types, I'll even add a retinoid, but not all melasma patients can tolerate a retinoid. And in fact, if they get irritation from retinoids, it will exacerbate their melasma. I'm actually pretty careful. So that's why I don't use that, the typical triluma, which you know consists of retinoid, hydrocortisone, and, and hydroquinone. And then I'll combine this with chemical peels and a clear and brilliant um, laser. I just tell them there's no such thing as a cure. It will come and go. You have to learn how to protect your skin and make sure that your melasma doesn't flare when you're going on vacations. I think Heliocare Advanced is really helpful. It's the pill made from a fern called polypodium leucotoma. So it's like an, an internal antioxidant. And that can really help with kind of decreasing the melanin response to UV exposure. And then I also use oral tranexamic acid, which is, I think a lot of us are using it nowadays. It's a melanin suppressor. And I tend to alternate using the oral tranexamic acid and hydroquinone. And I find that when I do all of these things, <laughs> I think the melasma response. It might work. <laughs> yeah. So just, it's a lot of work, I think, to treat melasma. But when it's done and patients are happy, it's rewarding and it's very satisfying, but it's a lot of work. <laughs> it is. And it's a lot of work for us as the dermatologists, but also for the patients because they've got a lot to do. They have to be super careful. And things that I think people aren't, they might know, well, the sun or my hormones trigger melasma, but they may not be aware that heat triggers melasmas. And I know like infrared is all over. People love to do those saunas. LED lights, people are buying them for at-home use. But if you have melasma, you should stay away from that or at least talk to your dermatologist about it because you may be making it worse without even realizing it just from the heat or the visible light. Yeah, no, that's such a good point. Yeah, those LED masks, saunas, red light, all of those can make melasma worse. I think most of my melasma patients, is they almost learn to accept the condition. But what really makes them mad is that they feel like they, they can't do the activities in the sun, especially in California, without worsening their melasma. And so I think that's where the education for enjoying life with sun protection, you know, comes into play. I think I've heard you talk about wearing those SPF sleeves. 
And just don't worry what you look like. Exactly. Like you're not going to look sexy. I love that. Well, for someone listening who maybe has skin of color, what should they be aware of just in regards to their overall skin, their skin health and their skin care? Just kind of some like general tips. I think, first of all, all of us just need to really embrace our skin type and color without trying to change it. Because I think that's the biggest misconception I see. You know, like I said, Caucasians want to become tanned. Indians want to become light. So I think just learning to embrace it and accept it. As with that being said, gentler skincare is always better, especially for skin of color patients who are struggling with pigmentation issues. Anytime we use too many ingredients or harsh ingredients, you're going to get some irritation, which can exacerbate that pigmentation. So I always recommend a simple and gentle skincare regimen, which I think you also really like to talk about on your podcast. I am super basic. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I love your point about embracing the skin that you have. I hope in my lifetime, I see this. I already feel like there's improvement, but if you're my color, don't try to be orange or super tan. Like I'm, that isn't how I was made. And if you're dark, don't try to bleach your skin or lighten your skin. Like I, I'd love to just see more acceptance for whatever shade you are, because we're all in in a few years, right? We're going to just be all these multitudes of different shades. But yeah, I think that's a huge part. It's just embracing and accepting whatever your skin type is, your skin tone. So I, I love to hear that. Of course, basic skincare for sure. Yeah. And then I think a lot of times skin of color patients are more, they're not as likely to seek out specialized care within the field of dermatology just because they are not even aware that they can have the same skin conditions that they hear their Caucasian counterparts talk about. So it's important to seek dermatologic care whenever you have certain skincare issues or if you see a sore that's not healing, you know, if you see a mold that's changing, like even if you're of color, you can still get afflicted with similar conditions. It's just important to keep that in mind and go see a dermatologist at the right time because it can save your life. Totally. And even if never feel like you're wasting our time, right? Because you may come in with something that's totally benign. And then while we're there, we might say, well, that's okay. But what about this? I also think it's a great idea just to get plugged in with a dermatologist, make sure what their area of expertise matches with what you're interested in or what your concerns are are and have that relationship already established so that when you do get that rash that comes up all of a sudden or a weird spot pops up, you can get in so much more easily when you already have that relationship established. So I almost say just like go ahead and get in, get a baseline skin check and talk about whatever concerns you have and just sort of have that for backup because these rashes and things that pop up, they never pop up when it's convenient and you don't want to wait three months to be seen. Yeah. It's true. And they always say, my, right, my rash is better by the time I came into the office. But yes, I think it, it, all of those points are so true. It's good to get plugged in. Great advice, Dr. Canning. You always share such amazing advice on your social media feeds. Where can our listeners find you, follow you, and maybe even see you as a patient? Yes. So I am at Dr. Swati Cannon on Instagram and TikTok. And then I have my own YouTube channel where I post different skincare videos, and it's also under my name, so Dr. Swati Cannon. And I work at UC San Diego, so I'm in academics, which I absolutely love, where I do skin cancer surgeries and a lot of cosmetic treatments. So if anyone's in San Diego, they're welcome to come say hi. Wonderful. Well, I will definitely include all of that in the show notes so people can find you. And I really appreciate your time. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you so much for having me. It was such a pleasure. I also love listening to your podcast, so 
I really like the message that you sent to all of the listeners. Oh, well, I appreciate that. And we'll see everyone next week. That's all I've got for this week's episode of the Skin Real Podcast. But here's some great news. One of the most valuable things you can do to help me and other new potential listeners to find my show is for you to both rate this show and leave a review. So as a special bonus for you, if you leave me a review, take a screenshot and email it to info at theskinreel.com and I will send you a thank you free PDF on skincare truths versus hype because you know I love spreading the word of good, truthful skincare. And please be sure to share, share, share with your skin friends so that we can get the word out there about real skin. And until next time, remember, no matter where you are in your skincare journey, always remember to love the skin you're in because real skincare from real experts can be real simple.